But I don't. I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hi everybody, welcome back to the Body Surf, or welcome if it's your first time. Oh wow. We have been around for 156 episodes, so uh, if you're new, you have a lot to uh, catch up on. Well, 157, we recorded 157 already. Yes. That's going to come out uh, sometime in the next we 10 days. put it in the bank, and we'll be releasing it while on the road. Uh, I'm James, by the way. I'm Jonathan, but this is 156. Yes. We, in about 48 hours, actually, we'll be getting on a plane to go across the ocean, taking two weeks off, super excited, going to see a little bit of the Rome tournament. One of us is more prepared than the other. I am not prepared in the least. <laughs> not even close. I suspect I'll be packing a second suitcase tomorrow night. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> What's going on? We're in the midst of this clay mm -hmm. season. And we have another semifinal for Rafa Nadal, previously in Monte Carlo, this time again in Barcelona. And this week, he lost to Dominic Team, who absolutely bodied that tournament. <laughs> he is playing with a lot more smarts than he's known for. Dominic has been such like a grip it and rip it kind of player. His tactics against Rafa, for example on clay were like return deep and smack the hell out of the ball and they've worked you know not at Roland Garros but he previously had beaten him three times on the surface now four but we saw a different kind of Dominic I think throughout the beginning of this year winning Indian Wells and now in Barcelona he he displayed some tactics we don't always see from him it started to be clear it started in Indian Wells because it was pretty mm. bleak before that's then. true he did not have a great January and February. And he didn't have a great week in Monte Carlo either. So he's had two <laughs> boss tournaments uh, yeah. where he played outrageously good tennis. And for his part, he came dressed for success because I absolutely loved that purple and black kit. Mm -hmm. He cut a few inches off the shorts, made a huge difference, and the color contrast on the, the clay was spectacular. Easily one of my favorite kits of all time. All time. All time. Just loved it. But how about his tennis? What about his tennis? Well, so Dominic brought you his full power game as usual. But as I said, there were there were shades, there were nuances, there were textures to it. Against Rafa, his returning was crazy. Like the strategy was clearly to return hard and very deep in the court every time. And he did a lot to neutralize Rafa's serve, which is not the biggest serve in the world, but it is a very good serve, especially with the lefty look. This wasn't the beatdown that Rafa got against Fonini the week before. This was much more competitive. Mm -hmm. The match touched, I want to say it was close to two hours, if not a little bit over. And although it was competitive, you still got the sense that Dominic was in complete control. Yeah, I would say it was it was more competitive than the Fonini match, but it looked like Dominic had it in hand mm -hmm. the entire time. 
What was alarming for Rafa in that match was the lack of break opportunities that he was able to generate on Team Serb. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until Dominic served for the match at 6-4-5-4 that Rafa earned his first break points. Right. Which ended up being triple break point, and Dominic saved them all. Aha. Uh-huh. This is not a good place to be in when Dominic team is out gritting you on a clay court. But it's not all doom and gloom because Rafa's game has progressed from Monte Carlo. He doesn't seem to be injured and he seems like he's not uh, he's not too discouraged with how it's going so far. But back to Dominic, I was super impressed by his use of the drop shot because his setup looks a lot like his normal backhand slice. And some of these drop shots against, oh my god, against Medvedev especially in the final, taking these horrible side spins away from the court were just beautiful to watch. Poor Daniel, because wow. in that second set, the, the scoreline was 6-4-6 love. And I think you have noted here that Medvedev won only five points in the second set. Uh, yeah. There were still some very competitive points in that second set. Wow. He just wasn't winning any of them. Right. How like how do you get over that mentally? Like the the tennis within points was compelling, mm-hmm. but like you said, Medvedev won so few of those points. I guess it's like what a lot of people feel like playing against Rafa. So much was coming back. Dominic's defense was at such a high level, and he was just uh, he was just like thinking out there. That's exactly what it was because team achieved a new level of grit and defense and all-round game on clay in this tournament. Mm -hmm. He unlocked something new. And patience, right? Well, yes, and also watching that final, that second set, it absolutely felt like Medvedev was playing a Rafa type on the other side of the net Mm -hmm. because nothing he did made a dent. In In the presentation afterward, Medvedev was almost kind of laughing about it. Because there was literally nothing he could do. Anything that looked to be penetrative, Dominic was able to absorb it and get himself back into the point before eventually coming up with something absurd. Like He was a wall in that match. And Medvedev has such an unusual game, right? Like, his strokes are a little bit weird looking, but he's also six foot six, I think. And he is content to grind, to play like a Djokovic-style of tennis not at that level of course but it's so unusual to see a guy so tall willing to just like grind out points and not not use that height to dominate where we are now is a rafa that is still improving and you couldn't call this week a regression you might expect him to just show up and win that obviously didn't happen but i don't think anything was too alarming in the way of saying, well, oh my god, Roland Garris is in jeopardy. The other thing that happened was Dominic Team absolutely put himself in a position to have confidence should he get to, to a position to play Rafa or one of the other top guys at Roland Garros. Keep in mind this is somebody who's made the semifinals twice and then went one further last year before mm-hmm. running into Nadal. So th- this, is, this is a good trajectory for him. Right. But we also have Medvedev developing as well. Mm-hmm. He made the semifinals in Monte Carlo after having beaten Djokovic, which was a huge win for him, and then follows it by making the final in Barcelona. That's that's huge for him. Yeah. For somebody who had great results on hard courts 
all last year. Mm-hmm. And then to now be adapting and adjusting and parlaying that game onto a different surface at such a young age, it can only mean good things for him. Mm-hmm. And so this is a bit of a, I guess, Roland Garros preview couple minutes. But what happens when, barring some withdrawals, team is now number five, likely to be seeded five at Roland Garros. Who's going to get him in the quarterfinals? That is not fun. Like, there are a lot of, of folks in the beginning part of week two on the men's side who could really upset things. Yeah. The other men's tournament, we'll get this out of the way, was in Budapest, where Matteo Berrettini beats Filip Krajinovic for his second career title, following up last year's win in Gestad, and he's now up to number 37. Mm. The women were in Stuttgart this week for the big clay event indoors, uh, an unconventional clay event, I would say. It's pretty. It's actually a pretty quick surface. Seems to be getting increasingly quick mm-hmm. from year to year. Yeah. Last Car- year we had Pliskova winning. Pliskova and- beating Coco Vandeweghe. Uh huh. And then this year, Ms. Uh, Petra Kvitova breaks the streak of what is it, eighteen or nineteen consecutive different winners on the WTA this mm-hmm. year. She's the first two-time winner on tour. Incidentally, Dominic Team becomes the second two-time winner on the ATP tour. Yeah. Behind Federer. So now we only have Federer, Team, and Kvitova with multiple titles mm-hmm. this year. Man, Petra Kvitova at this stage in her career is becoming Ms. Consistent, which is is one of these like later career revivals that are so interesting to me. Like Sharapova becoming a Roland Garros champion twice. That, know, that was very interesting to the, you? Well, it was... Uh, <laughs> Well, I wouldn't say enjoyable, but it was it was fascinating how somebody's game style could change so much. And with Petra, it's not that her style has changed, but something mentally has really clicked for her. Her major results haven't been as great, aside from being the runner-up at Australia this year. But over the past uh, almost two years, she returned from her attack and subsequent uh, left-hand injury in May 2017. She played Roland Garros that year, if you remember. Since May 2017, she's reached 10 finals, and she's won eight of them on all different surfaces. So finals on every surface in the game. Three three clay titles. She's your renaissance woman on the WTA Tour. Oh, really? And if she's in a final, it's a pretty good bet that she's going to win it. We might be in the midst of another... It's not that we might be. We are, likely... I guess that's might be. <laughs> Petra Kvitova is close to number one again, is what I'm saying. Having never been to number one, she's now just 136 points behind Naomi Osaka. Mm-hmm. However... There's a big but here. However, she's at a point in the schedule where she's defending a whole lot of points. She's the defending champion in Prague, but she's not playing it. Then she won in Madrid. She has to defend those points. She has third-round points at the French Open and then also titleist points at Birmingham. So unless she goes super deep at Roland Garros, it's tough to see this happening for her. Mm-hmm. And well, what makes it more tricky is that Naomi did not have a good summer. Petra's major results at the uh, French Wimbledon and US weren't great, so she can gain a lot of ground there, but Naomi didn't do that great either. And her summer wasn't very good until the US Open. So. I don't know, I think Naomi could potentially have a pretty good grip on number one for a little while if this abdominal injury isn't something serious. Really, either of the two would be worthy 
number ones at this point. Well, it makes sense. Petra is the points leader this year. Naomi has the Australian Open, of course. Which is to say the, the top of the WTA is in a healthy spot, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think, you know, between those two and Karolina Pliskova, they are the, the clear best players of the year so far. Stuttgart saw the return of Victoria Azarenka to clay courts. Yeah, so Vika played a hell of a match against Karolina Pliskova. Pliskova had been suffering from an illness and said she wasn't really training at full speed over these past few weeks. Azarenka, for her part, flew back from Fed Cup in Australia to play Stuttgart with a cough, so she didn't sound great either. So you have like the walking wounded here. Vika had a very interesting week, didn't she? <laughs> I she mean, was very active on social media. She sparred we... with some some trolls who were trying to rag on women's tennis. Uh, what something that I missed is that she posted a photo of chicken wings and watermelon, saying that this is like her ideal meal, which is, you know, it, it wouldn't be a thing if Vika didn't have like a history of um, a maybe cultural appropriation is too bold a word, but you know what I mean. Listen, Vika is, she could have been... Has been masquerading as the blackest white girl you know. She could have just been hanging out with Red Foo and discovered that these were a good pair, and it's now her favorite Are you meal. saying that Red Foo would eat like that because he is African-American? I'm just saying she probably didn't discover that combo from hanging out with, say, Petra Kavita. Or Caroline Wozniacki. Exactly. I mean, I don't think they hang out anymore, but still. Or Rodwanska. Rodwanska is not out here eating watermelon and chicken uh, wings. No, it's a, it's like not that big a deal, but it's just funny because Vico like was that girl who was dabbing after every match, who took on these like signifiers of black culture. It's a strange combination. It is strange. I, Vico, I get liking them individually. Oh, you mean the food? Yes, but putting them together and eating them together is hella weird for me. I hate watermelon. I think it is a horrible trash fruit. It's a, it's one of the things that you'd add to like a, a thesis worth of foods that you think are horrible trash. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Except the watermelon, like I can eat it. It's just like, why? It's, it's the most pointless food to me. What I'm really looking forward to is being in Europe and you having to ask in your second or third language to hold the tomatoes or the onions. Like, that will fucking give me life. Luckily, I know how to say those words. No, oh my god, can you imagine? No, you would never, never say that in an Italian restaurant. I don't know about Spain, I've never been there. Do you know it's a fun story? You're going to hate this story. But once, back when we used to eat a lot of fast food, we were in the drive-thru and you would always say hold the tomatoes, but you wouldn't say hold the onions because you felt cute. Because I thought it was like too much. You felt like it was too much until we went home and you left the wrapper with the onions on the counter and Vince almost died from eating it. I would say almost died is the stretch, but he <laughs> did he did get ill for several weeks. A public service announcement, onions and garlic are very poisonous to your dogs yes so be careful we did not know that and so now you always say no onion no tomato mm -hmm. wherever you go and now burger king started i put an using, end to that because wait, i was like this is ridiculous burger king started using sweet pickles okay this that is, is disgusting this like is, uh, that is i just people need to know i guarantee you this is more of an embarrassment to you than a public service announcement <laughs> 
Okay, what were you talking? We were talking about Vika. As Vika and watermelon so, and chicken wing. She is such a strange woman, Vika. I really like her, and I appreciate that she's always out here trying to fight the good fight. She's just such an unusual person. Mm-hmm. She brings such mystery to the WTA. She seems to be always, if not on point, on point adjacent when right. it comes to fighting these she's fights. She's well-intentioned. Yes. she. I don't know why she's really engaging with a lot of these male trolls, but... Why not? If you well, feel right. the need yeah. to, why not? Because like these, these, these men need to be put in their place. She's not new to the block. Like, she knows what's coming. Like, the trolls are going to be there regardless. So if it makes you feel better and you're doing a public service, which is, I guarantee you, more useful than letting people know about Burger King's sweet pickles. Wow. I guarantee you. That's not all there is to me. (laughs) (laughs) But back to the matter at hand. Vika is no shrinking violet. No. We we know this. And we need this. We need this. Mm. In this year of 2019, with all the mess going on in tennis, the more who are willing to talk up, the better. And we know that outside of a select few, that's not happening on the WTA. Like, we look to the women to be the ones, to be the, the moral fiber, the moral center of tennis. Well, At every turn. But it's, it's a burden that we put on women. Yes. That... You know, we expect them to make the right choices and to do the work for us. To mother mm. the hapless, mm. useless men who can barely put their underwear on straight. You know, like, this is the, the, the maternal narrative of women throughout all aspects of society and still today in professional sport. Mm. Yeah. Especially in tennis where, as Rafa Nadal would tell us, it's the sport where the genders are most equal. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Fuck, man. Uh, but if there is a sport where women are favored, he will find it. And he will mm. he will tell you about it. What do we make of Vika's comeback so far? For a long, for a long time, it felt sad. It did. It, it Be- felt like her, the troubles in her personal life were a huge distraction. Mm-hmm. Just were taking an emotional toll. According to her, in her interview after the Pliskova match, she said she feels like she's playing her best tennis. Like, she, she feels she's playing better tennis than when she was a number one. That, I don't know that I agree entirely, but I, I want her to think that. Well, D- do you know what I mean? How would you know? She well, would know more than us. And I don't sure. think she'd be one to bullshit us about that. But here's the interesting part. Those titles came when? 2012, uh, 2013? Yeah, those two Australian titles. This is six and seven years ago right now, her two Grand Slam titles. So if you were to look at that being her best tennis because of the biggest Mm. results that she's had, it's entirely conceivable that the game has changed in a way that Vika of then, her best, would not be the best now in terms of beating the top players. It's possible. I mean, she was being Serena back then. I don't know. I think it was 2011 and 12 because she and Nole started 2011 with this huge streak uh, of undefeated, remember? That adds yeah. to my point even anyway, more. It was a, a while ago. It's a while ago. And so she could be back legitimately to her best in terms of her game. Maybe her conditioning and her endurance isn't what it was. But perhaps it's worth considering that we shouldn't expect to see her be like a multiple-time Grand Slam winner again because A, the depth of women's tennis is so much greater. Like she knows this from having to play all these women in early rounds, making her way back. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
the road is just that much harder. Regardless, it's heartening and it's great to see her score these big wins. I mean, just not a couple weeks ago, she couldn't beat a very hobbled Venus Williams. Right. On a hard court. So this is a big win for her. Beating the defending champion in Stuttgart on a fast mm-hmm. clay court. And just coming off the final in Monterey. The concern is that injuries are cropping up, right? Yeah. She was not able to compete in Monterey final against Mugurutha. And uh, the conditioning is a concern. But it, it does seem like she's she's on the right track now. She said folks always tell her, you know, enjoy the journey because it's part of your process. And she was like, what? The journey <laughs> sucks. <laughs> I really enjoyed that honesty. Uh-huh. But back to Petra quickly. She beat Clay Wizard Kiki Burtons in the semifinals in a hell of a match. And that third set was something to behold because she really took hold. It was like the sprint at the end of a 400 meter or something. Oh, that's a good is comparison. It, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the better comparison would be an 800 meter. Eight, yes. That, okay. That's what I was going for. Or even like the 1600 meters. Where it's a long race and uh-huh. you're just like kind of like chugging along, getting jockeying for position, and at the end it's balls to the wall. Right. So Petra had plenty left in the tank. Her like her glow up as far as conditioning is wild. Yes. It is part of the transformation of Petra Kvitova. The the other two women's events this week in Istanbul, Petra Martic won her first WTA title, defeating Miss Vondrusova. We actually talk about Vondrusova in uh, our next episode, in the mailbag, as one of these under-20 players to watch as part of the WTA Next Gen. And elsewhere in Anning, which country is that? China. Correct. That was China. And in a final that would challenge the best of white people and their intentions, Zheng Saisai beats Zhang Shuai. It is a struggle. And we, we try, really try our best. Uh, Zhang Saisai, I remember a few years ago, was the wild card at the Zhuhai event. Yes. Remember that? Mm-hmm. That's where I first and learned of her. Yeah. She has uh, she has really used that that shining moment well. I mean, that's been a few years now. It has. To be clear. <laughs> <laughs> but she is out here. Mr. Rafael Nadal Pereira. <laughs> Continues to fumble and stumble... Uh, purposefully, it seems, on the equal pay question. This week, he was quoted by Jose Moron of uh, the Spanish publication Punto de Break. Point Break. Break Translated. Point. I think Break Point. <laughs> B- point Break is a movie. It's a little bit too literal, that <laughs> translation. He said, uh, th- this is translated, it was spoken in Spanish, by the way. So I th- speak some Spanish, so it was like... Oh, I read it the first time, and it was so clear. No, I just wa- I want to be okay. clear. I will read the quote, and then we can discuss it. Okay. Are you going to read it in Spanish? Uh, ex- <laughs> absolutely not. Estoy cansado. He said, I'm tired of the equality debate of prize money between men and women in tennis. We are the most egalitarian sport. Why don't you debate about basketball or football? We support women more than other sports. More than other sports. Mm-hmm. So just let it go, girl. Yeah. Let it go. Your point about this translation is is well taken because it is quite straightforward. I made the joke in a DM that this is not like ancient Sanskrit, right? Because we get a lot, well, it's been taken out of context and it's been translated. And 
someone's going to tell me estoy cansado doesn't mean I'm tired. I, I know what it means. Like We also know what's <laughs> been on the record as stated right. by right. him previously. So let's get past that, that whole context argument. To me, it is very clear. He made himself very clear in his native tongue that he is tired of talking about it. It does not affect him, therefore he does not care. I mean, and I hope you all hold your faves to that level of scrutiny, really. It was a struggle this week rooting for him in Barcelona. Honestly. It was, because... If, if we're being honest as fans here, because it was terribly disappointing. Right. I mean, watching tennis, even for the best of us, or best of you, is a, is an emotional experience, right? You get emotionally invested in players, you care about who they are as people, uh, maybe you care about what they like and what they stand for. I mean, I do. For me, it's really difficult to to separate those things. And I know some people can, but I I don't know. It's hard for me. Except for Joe Wilfred Sanko, which we'll get to on the next episode. Yes. <laughs> I feel I now... Anyway, you'll hear it. But I feel like I could have answered it so much better. You know? <laughs> I was pressed. I was forced to hold myself to the standards we hold other people to. And you can, you know, decide for yourselves. We're at a point where we're possibly thinking about redecorating. There are a few things up of tennis players that no longer spark the same joy, photos that we've taken. We're banding around the idea of maybe replacing them with our favorite music divas. <laughs> maybe classic portraits of Aretha, Whitney, Yeah, all the greats. I'm putting up tennis players who fought Nazis. In the 1940s. Oh my god. Anyway, Rafa has made clear where he stands. He thinks that men and women are pretty damn equal in tennis and that we should be looking at women's soccer, which I think is probably the first time he's showed any interest in advocating mm. for equal pay in women's soccer. It's just, it's very bad faith. The sinister part about it and what really disappoints me is that there's a by default tone to it where it's like, shouldn't you be happy with what you have? Like, look at all these sports that don't have it. Just be happy with that. Like, right. we've given you this much. Because we know he feels it comes from an economic argument where the men are making so much more profit for the sport that's disproportionate to what the women generate. So his argument is that the women should not get equal pay. Right? Or, well, not necessarily. He's saying, let's say Serena and Venus like garner massive ratings in a final. He, his argument would follow that they should be paid better for that match. He's saying that it should be like it should be that uh, granular. It's that's not a good faith argument. I I agree. I'm just saying because that will never. He happen. is not he is not uh, on its face against women earning the same, but he's saying they have to basically put up the numbers. What the. the but I'm saying it's not good faith because the numbers are skewed, the numbers are subjective, all this. We've talked about this. Of course. Yes, I agree. So what I'm saying is it's it's kind of a brush off. It's it a is, throwaway. Of course it's a brush off. It's, he said, I'm tired. It's <laughs> it's protecting your own pocket at the end of the day, yeah. truly. Because what's to stop somebody from saying, well, I don't care if the numbers are that close or I don't really care about inspecting the numbers that closely. Like the woman worked just as hard what am I what am I standing to lose from having them being paid equally? Like why are you so caught up well, that's the in thing. the minutiae, the granular X's and O's, the the ledgers 
of who's earning what when you know nobody's keeping track of that and you know that that stuff is not accurate. Right. The argument is based on meritocracy. That that meritocracy exists and it's pure and it's always right. It, you know, people who grew up with privilege believe that meritocracy is real in every situation, you know, like that we all start from the same place. Well, we know that women's sports doesn't start with the same advantage as men's. Like it, it always has to justify its existence, right? And whenever women falter, whenever there's a lopsided match or or a match that's not highly rated on television, it, it has to represent all of women's tennis. It, it can't stand on its own like a men's match would. So the the idea that like this is an equal playing field and you have to achieve based on on where we are now, it's I mean it's a fallacy. That's what's frustrating. But let's look at the ledgers for male and female models. Oh, let's do that. Of course. That's what's important. Total 180 here. The Wimbledon roof has spoken. Or should, the All England Club has spoken. The roof policy has been revised because of what happened last year. The controversial semifinal between Rafa and Novak Djokovic. If any match needs to be resumed the next day that was played under the roof if the weather permits it it will be played outdoors regardless of how the match was begun so last year rafa novak started their match late the night before and it was played under the roof Mm -hmm. and then it was suspended because of the noise ordinance or whatever like the 11 p.m bewitching hour remember yes and so and it's very strict very strict in the wimbledon village and there was uh a lot of consternation about what would happen the next day. Will the match mm. be resumed under sunny skies, clear skies, with an open roof, or do we need to maintain the same conditions that the match was started under? Right. Which, so there were like a, several prevailing philosophies of the tournament itself. One was that a match should finish under the conditions it started under. The other sort of divergent philosophy is that Wimbledon is an outdoor tournament and when they built the roof they reminded us very often Wimbledon is outdoor and it's not a night tournament so last year they didn't really have a policy in place because believe it or not this was the first time in the history of the roof that a match needed to be resumed the next day on center court what they did was they decided to go with well matches should continue under the same conditions and that's why the roof was closed but apparently that will change we of course, have no idea what would have happened. It's silly to assume that Rafa would necessarily have won the match if it were outdoors. It's also silly to assume that Novak definitely would have won the match. Like, there are so many variables. I still maintain I don't care about that situation in retrospect because Rafa had his chances and he did not take them Mm. in that match. That's where I lay in that situation. <laughs> and that's the end of that. All right. Nice to have this set in writing going forward so we know. So we don't have to be speculating about who right. is influencing what, which player is being favored, and have fandoms act a complete mess about their yes. player being put upon. In excellent queer achievement, world number 154 Greet Minen of Belgium was coached by her girlfriend. Alison van Oetboink. Oh, fuck. 
I cannot say this name. You really struggle with that I pronunciation. I do. I cannot say the name, and I've tried so many times. We were... I never expected to even try again on the show, and so I, I, I'm looking at the agenda, and I saw it, and I heard it coming. It's like, shit, is he going, is he going for it? Is he going for it? <laughs> and it really wasn't that bad, to be honest. Oh, it was bad. I'm still not cons- convinced that I say it great either, Van Oitvenk. I don't know. It's closer. Dutch is very difficult. Not as difficult as Polish. I don't know. Allison, last name redacted, was coaching her girlfriend Greet in Stuttgart. Minin qualified in Stuttgart and beat Sibokova in the first round, and then played Petra Kvitova and got her to 6-4 in the second set. She's reached a career high of number 154, and now the two are playing doubles in Rabat, Morocco, and have reached the quarterfinals. Good for we, them. we love LGBTQ achievement. Queer excellence. Onto the segment of the show where we deal with this recurring, never-ending, gimmel-stab bullshit. Another wild tonal shift in this episode, I would say. <laughs> we go from queer excellence back to this. Queer excellence to straight fuckery. Damn. This issue would have been sorted, it would have been done and dusted, had Gimelstab excused himself. And that's still an option. Take yourself out of the running, even if you think it's going to be temporary. Look, excuse yourself, play the victim the rest of your life like Neil Harmon. Oh, like, we're, we're not even going there. I'm just saying, that is your right. Tell us how you've been victimized for the rest of your life. I'd rather that than this. Yeah, I think even uh, even Gimelstab's friends are beginning to come out and say, you know, I, it's it's long past time that Justin just recedes from the spotlight a bit. Renee Stubbs today, Martina Navratilova actually was finally goaded on Twitter into saying something definitive on the record. I don't know that either of those women would characterize themselves as friends of Justin okay, Gimelstab. Okay, well, they're definitely colleagues. And neither of those two have been vociferous. No, Renee so has far. Renee has been leaving threads, breadcrumbs here and mm, there mm. for quite a while. I would not lump okay. her into the same category okay. as Martina. She was even out there today doing clap hand emojis <laughs> to Stan Varenka. So boy, it took a lot for Martina to get to where she eventually got to as kind of a a tepid reply not a tweet a standalone tweet but a tepid reply to say well yeah well maybe we're at the point where this needs to to end mm-hmm. yeah i was actually surprised she went there because she had been so uh, kind of obstructionist for a while saying it kind of taking on kind of saying it's just not my place to say anything i don't know the details but after the details of the case were made public it's it's difficult to make that your platform. And she got a lot of people f- giving her feedback as to what they thought about her right. after the facts were known. And she responds to like everybody, which is why I do not tag her because I don't I don't need to be talking all this mess to Martina Navratilova. Like that is not my intention. I still have great respect and admiration for her, but she's a public figure. And I'm sure there are considerations for these folks outside of our speculation as to mm-hmm. why they behave and choose to do or say things as opposed to not. Right. And why they would be extremely careful in the things that they do choose to say mm-hmm. public- publicly. We don't have the stakes that they do. 
<laughs> you know, that is it, true, it is yeah. always easier for us to sit here and say these things than it is for them to take on those mantles. Yeah. Right. With that said. So uh, last episode we we released last week, we talked in depth about this issue shortly after the the results of Justin Gimmelstomp's hearing came out. His plea of no contest, his sentence and what the future holds. We talked a bit about the New York Times article that came out right as we were airing. Literally, we, we were as right as we were recording. Read yeah. it in maybe five minutes and then had to talk about it. Yes, I don't think we commented too much about it. Um, I, mean, I we, always, always hesitate to to cast aspersions on a journalist, mm-hmm. but the fact that Gimmelstab tweeted out this story in, in a reputable newspaper uh, <laughs> led us to believe it show, it showed him in a good light. We read it as PR. Well, we did not know... I was trying to read it as this is journalism and uh, it just no, wasn't happening. That was never... It on, wasn't working. That was never in the cards. But we did not know the actual stuff that was at play, which was laid out bare in a piece by Laura Wagner for Deadspin. Just went... Off. It was searing. Uh, searing. Right. It was polemical. It was flamboyant. But it was well-researched, and it's it got its point across, arguing that Cindy Schmerler, who was the reporter who wrote this piece about Gimmelstab, failed to disclose her previous work for both Tennis Channel and Tennis.com, both of which are owned by Sinclair Broadcasting, which employs Justin Gimmelstab, and this was a failure on both her part and the New York Times both Schmerler, both Schmerler and the New York Times claim that her past work for Tennis Channel and Tennis.com did not include Justin Gimmelstab or writing about Justin Gimmelstab, and so it did not require them to disclose this. Right. So what is required and what is advised are clearly two different things. What is always advised is to let the reader know and make that choice yes. for themselves. So to me, this seems like a, a real failure on the part of the New York Times editorial policy. The New York Times sports editor declined to comment. Schmerler did hit back and say, listen, like I've been doing this for many years. I've won many awards. People respect me, which is all true and is all fine, but it doesn't address the issue at hand. Are the accusations about this particular piece true? Did you do everything in your part to to make us aware of any potential conflicts? Which, as you recall, is the problem from the jump in the Skimmelstop story, is that there are so few people in tennis who are not conflicted, who can speak independently about this issue. And there's so few people who are not involved with Gimmelstab in ways that we don't even know. I feel like we know 10% of the ways in which Justin Gimmelstab is intertwined in all facets of tennis and the Mm -hmm. people within tennis. And we talk about how, well, why are some people not saying things or whatever? Well, just last year before this news of the assault broke, we heard that Federer and Djokovic and their kids were at Gimmelstab's kids' birthday party. Right. Like that is, Gimmelstab is a master of constructing these situations whereby people become ingratiated to him by default. Mm. And this doesn't necessarily mean they're friends. No. You know, but it's a a social situation. And so back in 2012, I think, when Gimmelstab got married, he was at the time 
producing videos for ATP. They were called ATP Uncovered. He, his production company that he owned was one of the companies that produced these videos. Mm-hmm. Which is called Without Limits. Without Limits. Unironically. And so one of the spots that was produced, a, a little six-minute video spot of Gimmel Stubbs' wedding, and we have all these people singing his praises. Jim Courier talking about how it's a testament to how connected he is in the sport, blah, 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 that all these people are here. One guy who works in player services saying that he is, what, the morals, the moral conscience of tennis. Wild mm. stuff. Mm. But you have all these people who are on the record at his wedding singing his praises, who ate and drank and danced and caroused at his wedding, cementing by default his place within the tennis fabric, right? Like, the the narcissism jumped out (laughs) when you consider that this dude has made his wedding what most consider, like, this, this one of the top three most important moments of your life to be a public PR spectacle for his career, Mm. something that he can put on his resume, and then rope in all these tennis bigwigs to sing his praises and have that be, to this day, still on the ATP YouTube, YouTube channel as a testament to Justin's abilities and worthiness within tennis. The moral conscience. Mm. Like, I want people to understand that I am without any doubt that this was all orchestrated leading to this point. Like, for somebody who was, I mean, you're top 100, you're one of the best tennis players in the world, right? Like, that's a fact. But as far as somebody who should go on to have this much influence within tennis... Because of your playing career, he was a middling tennis player. Like the, the roots and the seeds of what we're seeing now have been planted long ago. This was art, this was by design. And so now we're at a, a place where Gimelstab and his narcissism, in spite of all that has happened, still requires him to fight this tooth and nail because he feels that he's he's owed this, that he's worked for this. He's put in the hard yards to have him ascend to ATP president. And what we've seen this week with what came out today, Christopher Cleary posted on Twitter a few pages of uh, a, a, a document that was sent to the ATP board on behalf of Gimmelstab. From his lawyer. From his lawyer. Yeah. That saying, here are all the things you might have missed mm-hmm. if you read the court transcript. That action shows that he is doubling down. He is still having his eye on this ATP prize. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much we got into this in the last episode. Um, ben Rothenberg initially obtained a bunch of pages of the court transcripts uh, in which the judge clarified the meaning of unprovoked in a, in a legal context, saying that you know, in a in a social situation, there may have been mitigating factors. He may have said things to upset you that interpersonally may have been really mean and nasty, but legally, it's not a provocation to violence, right? So he was explaining the legal concept of provocation. Uh, a really important tidbit from this is that in California, a no contest plea is basically equivalent to guilty in a court of law. So the judge said, and I quote, you'll be pleading guilty to a felony. 
I have indicated that I've been using my discretion to reduce it as a misdemeanor, uh, dot, dot, dot. Do you understand that? The defendant says, yes, your honor. The defendant clearly has been asked and has explained that he understands you are pleading guilty to a felony in the court's eyes by saying no contest. I'm not contesting these felony charges against me. The court views this as a guilty plea and will sentence you thusly. However, what does the judge then go on to say about what Gimelstab can and can't say going forward? Right. So the judge made clear that if the defendant, Gimelstab, makes any proclamations publicly that he is innocent, that he will find himself back in court and it risks invalidating the the deal. Which means that the judge used his discretion to reduce this to a misdemeanor. If he finds that Gimostab is proclaiming his innocence in public, that that could invalidate the misdemeanor. In effect, this letter that was sent to the ATP is saying Gimostab did not plead guilty. He pled no contest. There's right. been no admission of guilt. So the lawyer was careful with his wording, but misrepresented what a no contest plea actually means. It wasn't 100% honest about what it means in the eyes of the court. To be honest, if I'm banking on the brain power of the ATP Players Council to be able to decipher the difference between no contest and pleading guilty, like this is a way to go. Mm. Right. So what obviously his lawyer left out was that they had every opportunity to choose a trial. In that case, he would have pled not guilty. The lawyer asserted that they had plenty of evidence to say that Kaplan's version of the events was false. So this is how the legal system works here. You choose to go to trial and you present that evidence. You can cross-examine the victim. Because this was not a trial, Kaplan got to read his victim impact statement without being cross-examined. We have no idea if all those things that he said are true, but the defendant chose not to go to trial. It's done. Right? If, like, if Gimmelstab wanted to make sure that he was absolutely cleared, right. then he would have gone to trial. If he's absolutely 100% sure of his innocence and he wants to make sure he's cleared so that there's none of these issues and uh, so-called muddied waters... Mm-hmm going forward then he had that ball in his court right he chose not to and i suspect because that would not have been tied up in a timely enough manner to then be able to pivot yeah to this to atp presidency term, basically Correct. on the board yes the thing is if you have a lot of evidence to disprove what kaplan said you you declined your chance to use it it's done like the case has been resolved that's what no contest means He's so, since gone on to to take out a restraining order against Kaplan. He's he's it's a wide ranging assault on anybody who could get in his way of this matter at hand, right? right? And when you consider that again, if his goal was to actually prove his innocence, then he should have gone to trial. Right? So we, we can put that to rest. That's not what this right. is about. That's not what this is about at like all. Like that that is the system we're stuck with. Basically, that is how the judicial system works. And so now he's throwing the weight of his lawyers in any way he can to to bully his way. Yeah. So it, it's interesting to me not having a legal background. I I can't tell at what point do, do these actions violate the judge's warning. 
the judge said, if you assert your innocence in public, you'll find yourself back in court. So I, I honestly, I, I don't know. Is the lawyer sending a letter like this a violation of that? It's not Gimelstab himself speaking, but it's obviously his lawyer speaking on his behalf. Um, at what point is this proclaiming one's innocence? Where we are at now is finally we have a coalescing of voices that we didn't have before. Mm-hmm. People are starting to speak up. So Darren Cahill was one of the first ones to give his opinion. He posts on Twitter, quote, Justin should have stepped down from the board months ago pending the result of his legal case. Now that the judgment is in, the player council should pick another candidate on May 14 to represent men's tennis at board level. If contrary information is revealed in his civil case, then I'd welcome Justin to run for a board position again, if he so wishes. There's good in Justin that many people don't get to see, but clearly what happened is unacceptable on many levels. Now there's a little bit of shade in here, I think. And very smart, clever wording from Darren because he's saying if contrary information is revealed, information that you, Justin, made sure didn't come to light because he didn't go to trial, right? Right. If eventually that does come out, then you're welcome after this. Hold your horses, take your time, let this play out the way it should if that's your goal and then we can revisit it. Right. It's, it's, like, it's a poke at the fact that really that's not Gimmelstab's goal. His goal is to maintain his position on the board and to ascend even further. Yeah, I think one of the most frustrating things is that a lot of people are assuming good faith on Gimmelstab's part when he hasn't really shown that he deserves the presumption of good faith, that he's acting on good faith. Emily Moresmo said, I guess that's not the kind of behavior you want to see from someone in our sport having a big role in any of the ATP, WTA, or ITF. Like, I don't know how you call these associations, organizations, definitely not. <laughs> and we we said last week that Moresmo has, like, moved into this role as sort of a, a moral leader in the most unassuming, casual way. Well, we said this on the episode that's oh, coming sorry. next. Right. Moresmo is just uh, someone who says what she feels, and th- this is what came out. She doesn't. She never comes across as someone who's like worried about her position. Martina eventually said, "ATP will decide, and so will Tennis Channel." But I'm sad to say this, and say this I must. She must. Justin would not get my vote. Not anymore. Dot mm. dot dot. You know, it it did take a little while to get there, uh, and some tennis Twitter people that you probably know. Uh, elicited that response from Martina. It's still there. You know, she didn't delete it or anything. Like, it's out there. She is on the record, and it seems that she's comfortable with this now. It's a collective effort right now going on on Tennis Twitter with a lot of folks putting in a lot of work. (laughs) Stan Wawrinka today was uh, the most vociferous active player. He's also somebody who has been a big defender of Chris Kermode. Yes, He said, players need to speak out. Justin Gimmelstab has been convicted of a violent assault. It simply cannot be possible for anyone to condone this type of behavior and worse, support it. In any other business or sport, we would not be discussing this. Two things at play here. I saw a lot of people doing this business where, oh, look at that Stan Wawrinka, the moral center of tennis, referencing the Donna Vekic thing. (laughs) You know what? Yeah. As we always say, multiple things can be true. It's true. I mean... You'd have a better argument to say, well, he's just protecting his position of wanting to protect Chris Kermode. 
but like that that's done and dusted it is you know like what what reason would stan have to speak out now and the bottom line is gimmelstab must go right <laughs> by all means necessary like just because you think stan is a sleaze doesn't mean he's wrong uh-huh. but he touches on a really important point a crucial point in any other business or sport we would not be discussing this because <laughs> i would i would take issue with that a little bit it does make tennis look provincial and sloppy. However, I do think that we've seen a lot of major sports leagues overlook domestic violence, rape, etc. in players. In players, this is totally different. This is somebody who, is ha- who has hats in so many different mm. rings in tennis. As a tennis commentator within a, a more traditional work environment on the tennis channel... As somebody who is behind the scenes working to advocate for tennis players, working with uh, tournaments, working with players, working with communications people for both the ATP, WTA, like he has interactions with yes, everybody yes. in tennis. I think the difference here is that when these things become public, most corporations act on it. When it's behind closed doors and they know people are doing messed up stuff like this, they may not care as much, but it has been publicized. I don't think that gives these other businesses and sports a moral high ground. It does not. Mm. I mean, this is something you're bringing up. Okay. <laughs> I no, want that's to know what is, he said. I want to know is, does the Tennis Channel have an HR department? Does the ATP have an HR department? Does the WTA have an HR department? Because if I'm a WTA player, I'm thinking, well, I'm lodging a, an HR complaint saying, like, I don't feel safe having to walk by this dude in the stairwell of Cincinnati on the way to the players' lounge or to having to walk past him in like the dining area in the food court in the in the players' area. Like these are cr- they're they're crazy situations that we don't even think mm-hmm. about. We know how accessible tennis is in terms of fan interaction with players and whatever. Who is to say that somebody who was really anti Gimmelstab and took him to task over the last few months isn't somebody who might be targeted right, underground right. somewhere like who might, or who just might be blackballed in their career which is why a lot of these people are yeah. more afraid to talk or then has to go and sit on set with him after having had internal conversations that he finds out about afterward right. there are all these situations now where i imagine there are folks who are dreading him being reintegrated into the many different roles that he has because it will now be a hostile work environment right and why for what for what really like what is tennis going to lose so the you know the effect that the governance structure is so segmented in tennis and that there are no player unions makes this sort of stuff able to fester like if if it were one company let's say one league for the men and women represented by one union for men and women there would there would be policies in place, right? I know, like I work in HR, for example. No company would take the risk, even even if they had no moral judgment on what happened. They they had no problem with his actions, or they didn't believe they were true. Companies would never take that sort of financial and public relations risk of keeping him. Many companies, if they found out what he said in two thousand eight, after the fact would let him go right like, i know they, that in my own workplace they've let people go for things that i thought was ridiculous you know and unfair to that person 
but which goes to show risk, right? Tennis Channel run by Sinclair, the ATP, they do not give a flying fuck. And sports are weird in general as a workplace, and tennis especially is a very strange workplace, but they've got to get this stuff together. I'm hesitant to say that the WTA as an organization should be the one leading this charge or should right. be putting more right. onus on them to do it because while we can't look at the WTA as a blanket, well, it's coming from the woman. It's still run by Steve Simon. And, <laughs> you know, Simon. Yes. And there are men in charge of that entity. It's not like a woman, right? Right. But it's right. still representative of the women's tour. Like a lot of this has to do with men who have done bad things, continue to do bad things, and are protecting their own. So why should the women then be the ones to be the voice of reason to get this done? Right. And then, you know, as we know, the players don't have a collective voice. They're not unionized. Does one woman run the risk of being held out to dry if she chooses to speak up? And we know that there are so many women who work behind the scenes across all three tennis entities, Tennis Channel, ATP, WTA, who have to interact with them. You know, like, there's a lot at play here for folks who work in tennis going forward now that he is trying to actively reintegrate himself and ascend even further. Hmm. So, there have been a few candidates putting up their hands. In the road to Rome. (laughs) Hashtag road to Rome. Rome. May 14th. Mm. May 14th, there will be a vote at the Rome tournament for the next... uh, ATP board member to represent players. For it, the Americas. It could be Justin Gimmelstab. Uh However... The, well, the last time we spoke to you, we were wondering if he was just going to run unchallenged. Yeah, That's what was, it looked like. He was like. running unopposed for a while. But over the past few days, Tim Mayotte has put his hand up, who has actually served on the Players' Council before, and none other than Brad Gilbert. The Brad Gilbert... Which is very juicy. Is very juicy. Very juicy. They have supposedly put this stuff behind them. But back, back in the 90s, Sports Illustrated reported this little gossip tidbit. Back when Sports Illustrated covered stuff like this in tennis, that Andre Agassi was making all this drama about Davis Cup, right? And then he slandered Justin Gibbonstab as a player well, in dra- public. Well, he said he wasn't going to play, He right? said, I will not play Davis Cup. I wouldn't play Davis Cup if it was in my backyard. And then part of that was like criticizing USA for putting up Justin Gimmelstab as a USA Davis Cup player. He said he wasn't, basically wasn't at the level. So Justin was pissed. Justin's father was extra pissed. At Apparently, the, At the time, Brad was coaching Andre. Yes. So according to this report, Barry Gimmelstab and Brad Gilbert got into a bit of a skirmish maybe a shouting match. And Barry Gimmelstab allegedly spat at Brad and said he was a disgrace to Jewish coaches. So this was reported in a major publication. We are not making this up or casting aspersions. So Brad said that this is all behind them, like it's water under the bridge. When did he say this? I don't don't remember. But Gilbert has put up his hand and say, I would like to run for the seat. And I think that he would probably have pretty wide support. I think he's pretty respected among, you know, n- not the people who vote, the the commentary team, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if this was like the tipping point. Another bit of juiciness. Last year when I tweeted that bit about Justin in the power dick suit at Wimbledon, <laughs> 
where he rises from his seat. It was a little video, and he's like fist pumping. Uh, yeah. And he, it just looks all kinds of awful. I tweeted, have you ever seen anything more terrible at a tennis match? And put that video out. And one of the people to like that tweet was Brad Gilbert's wife. Mm-hmm. At the time... Mrs. G. Mrs. G. At the time, I had no idea of this context. <laughs> and now it makes sense. So for you to tell me that, oh, Brad's like over it, I declined that opinion. Okay. And I think this is... Publicly. So this is petty genius. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, we don't know anything happening behind the scenes with these people. All we know is that Brad publicly said that he would like to run for the seat. So that we don't get He'll sued. He'll be on the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> what is clear is that hopefully Stan is now able to lead more players in the direction of speaking up. And the vote, May 14, that happens on a Tuesday. So the Rome pre-tournament pressers availabilities will have happened before that vote. Mm. And you know that is going to be the hottest oh. of topics that week. Yeah. So even if folks don't opine on this on Twitter or social media ahead of time, we are going to get a lot of players asked about this before that vote. Mm. And we are going to maybe be surprised and maybe be disappointed by some folks, but we're going to this is not going to be the end of it. There's a lot more to hear from players before this vote happens. And let me tell you, if if at the end of this, this player council panel votes for Gimmelstab, Lord, I hope there is a video in there. I <laughs> hope we get... Are they live streaming this? I, we get a play-by-play. I want to know who voted what. This better not be no behind-the-scenes voting situation. Okay, so a few more odds and ends before we wrap up. Let's... Let's start with the bad news and end with the good news. Okay. The bad news is, well, I, I, got, I don't know. This is neutral news. Jeannie Bouchard and Michael Joyce have split up. They've ended their coaching partnership. Jeannie, uh, who apparently hangs out with Venus Williams. Uh, did you know that? Was it the Miami Herald Miami. saying that Venus was a party animal last weekend in Miami? In yeah, South because Beach? Venus is like a part-time DJ now. <laughs> <laughs> She's hanging out with DJ Khaled. Like, so... Venus's journey was that she was cool in like the late 90s to around 2002 and then she became like a granny and now she's cool again. But apparently Venus went out partying hard the first night, went home and then she went out again. And on the second Does night Did she drink though, do you think? On the second night they said they were drinking champagne and doing shots of vodka, her and Jeannie. That's Stop. what the article said. That's what the article said. See, I could see Venus doing like shots of water or like throwing the shots over her shoulder or something. Listen, why should not why should Venus Williams not be out here having a good time? Well, I'm not saying she shouldn't. It's just it's hard for me to to see. Mm. Um, so the bad news is that Bianca Andreescu, if you've noticed, has not played since retiring in Miami, has suffered a shoulder tear. This is according to her coach, Sylvain Bruneau. She hasn't even picked up a racket since Miami, apparently. She is doing, like, strength training. She's in the gym, but she hasn't actually been playing. And it's not clear when she'll be back. He's hoping that she'll be back during the clay season, but didn't put, uh, like, a, a deadline on it. A shoulder tear does not sound good. Yeah, God, you do not want to go down that road. 
at and, uh, 18 years old. Perhaps it's a function of playing so many matches unexpectedly because she wouldn't stop. Right. She wouldn't stop winning. Yeah. She just won everything. Now she'll be in a position to pick her spots more, hopefully going forward. And hopefully the injury won't be too bad. Right. The good news is that Sloane Stevens has gotten engaged to boyfriend Josie Altador, who plays for a Toronto football club here in our adopted hometown. Toronto FC. Mm-hmm. They have been... I mean, first of all, what a glow-up. To think that Miss Stevens oh. was on track to become Mrs. Sock Mi- at one point. Oh my god, Sloane Sock. Can you imagine? <laughs> Sloane Stevens Altador. That is, it's, I mean, it's a breath of make, fresh air. They make a very attractive couple. Sloane seems deliriously happy. Mm-hmm. And I'm into it. Black excellence. We had queer excellence, now we got black excellence. On that note, ending on a high, we've come to the end of episode 156. Our next episode will not be a live tennis episode. There will be no results on that show. It'll mm-hmm. be a strictly mailbag only show it'll be it's honest searing is it self-reflective you're trying all to, of those you're things. trying to prepare folks for the first five to six minutes of that episode <laughs> yes where you get put on the hot seat and uh no, well you'll see no but you keep saying it's not live but it's still worth a listen oh absolutely i we think we really did our best i think we've done a lot to sell our personalities and our relationship on this show mm. over the last four plus so years if you don't like our personalities then you definitely <laughs> do not like this show to and the, i don't blame you to then make that a worthwhile listen the caveat being we were kind of uh what it pressed for time so some of the the questions that we got, we weren't able to get to. We didn't get to all of them. We record all of them, and we will pick them up in later episodes, hopefully. Till then, my name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are at The Body Surf on both Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. It's always a welcome treat. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.